Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Halifax Christian Church. This is the annual meeting time for those of you that have formally identified with our congregation on the last Sunday of this month at 12.30, so that's following this 11 o'clock service. We'll hold the meeting right here in the worship area. And the annual meeting basically deals with the financial affairs of the congregation. It's not a long meeting, actually. We talk about our budgeting for the future year. And then we also get reports from each of the ministries in the church. So last year, I think it was 45 minutes. We had to set a record for church annual meetings. Credentials. It's a picture ID that's flashed in order to gain access to the secure area. It might be a personalized invitation, usually handed to the doorman at a black tie event. It could be bars sewn onto a uniform, which gets you a salute every time you meet someone in a secure military area. Credentials. They tell us who the person is. They open doors. They elicit invitations. They bring about handshakes and nods and acceptance. And in order to safe keep the integrity of credentials, more accurate and sophisticated ways of identification have been invented. So we now have eye scanners. If you've ever watched a movie like James Bond and the bad guy gets killed, but his eye scan will open that door, so they just kind of grab the dead body, take the body over, shove the eyeball up to the eye scanner. It's just amazing what we have. Thumbprint readers. And then we have electronic chip decoders, so every time we use our debit card or a charge card, what's your chip? Use your code. The best credentials always have been action, though, not ID cards. And they've been results and not references. Now, impressive credentials are what made Jesus the amazing leader that he was. And he bore the title of the Son of God, and then he had all the accomplishments that he did in his life. And we're going to look at some of those here this morning that will help substantiate that claim that he was the Son of God. And when we look at these claims, then we're actually going to make some claims ourselves. We're going to boast about Jesus as our Savior. We're going to brag about him. We are going to say that he is our dynamic leader and be so proud of it. In Galatians 6.4, the Apostle Paul said, But I will never brag about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul then said, Because of his cross, the world is dead as far as I am concerned. And I am dead as far as the world is concerned. So Jesus proved that he has the credentials, that he's completely worthy of us following him. So as we look at this passage this morning, we're going to discover several different credentials that Jesus possessed and that should actually endear us even more to him. But first of all, we note that he spoke clearly and with authority. So in Luke chapter 4, verse 31, Jesus went to the town of Capernaum in Galilee and taught the people on the Sabbath. His teaching amazed them because he spoke with power. If the people looked at him with a wide-eyed amazement, they just couldn't believe what they were hearing. That he spoke like no other person spoke. There was a special power in his teaching. But within Christianity today, we usually have two schools of thought. 
One says, it's all about head knowledge, it's all about what you can learn about the Bible. And then the opposite extreme is the other school that says it's an emotional experience. It's all in the heart. But we, when we look at Jesus and his teaching, we realize that he said that it's both. It's something that's in the head, but it's something that's a part of our emotions as well. And for that reason, he has all authority. Matthew 22, verse 37. Jesus answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. So it's love me with everything you've got, with every part of your being. That's what he's asking us. But Lewis Foster was a professor at Cincinnati Christian Seminary, and I actually met him back in 1985. A preacher brought him up to New Brunswick, to a small little rural church, to speak at, for a weekend event. And I got to meet him there. We actually stayed in the same house together that night. And this is what he said. He said, the characteristic most noted about Jesus' messages was the authority of the messenger. Jesus needed no greater authority than his own word. He had authority in his preaching and authority in his healing. He even had authority to forgive sin. His gospel was a new message, but he had the authority to inaugurate it. He used the expression, I tell you the truth, six different times in the Gospel of Luke. And it was more than just a means of getting people's attention or declaring importance. It was an affirmation of Christ's authority. We quote Time Magazine or the Wall Street Journal while Jesus simply said, I tell you the truth. And there's no mistaking that Jesus had the authority then and that he still has that very same authority today. So we're going to begin where our associate pastor James Stevenson ended off last week with Jesus walking through a crowd. This crowd wanted to kill him. They couldn't stand the fact that he was speaking with authority. But he just walked right through that crowd because he commanded so much authority. But back when I was playing hockey as a 17, 18-year-old, it was an awful league. There were fights on the ice, fights after the games. One time, a fight took place off ice between periods. And my dad and another man were standing at the end boards, and they saw someone basically go at one of my players. And there was just a 15-foot area between dressing rooms and the end of the ice surface. And this big crowd starts to come down and intervene. But my dad and this other guy, the other guy was six foot seven, and this amazing wingspan, the two of them just walked against the crowd, pushed about 300 people back. And I thought, that's authority. And maybe that's the type of authority that Jesus had. He just walked through that crowd, the crowd parted, nobody touched him. A couple of years later, just before ascending into heaven, Jesus said, all authority has been given to me. And remember where he said, he said that's in heaven and on earth, so it's everywhere. He has been given authority over all things. But we live in a world that questions authority. In this midst of confusion over who should be in authority, people will often ask, you know, does that person have the right to say what's morally right or wrong? Like, who has that right? But Jesus is saying, all authority has been given to me. So I'm the one that has authority to determine what's right and what's wrong. So if you choose to be a Christian, 
then you're choosing to accept Jesus' authority in your life. The second thing that we see that's an amazing credential here is the fact that he boldly battled the enemy. In verse 33, there in the Jewish meeting place was a man with an evil spirit. He yelled out, Hey, Jesus of Nazareth, what do you want with us? Are you here to get rid of us? I know who you are. You are God's Holy One. And then Jesus ordered the evil spirit to be quiet and come out. The demon threw the man to the ground in front of everyone and left without harming him. They were all amazed and kept saying to each other, What kind of teaching is this? He has power to order evil spirits out of people. News about Jesus spread all over that part of the country. But the enemy is Satan. Satan has his demons with him. And demon possession is when a demon takes control of a person, and it's usually because that person has allowed that demon to come in, or they've even invited that demon to come in. The person can't be a Christian, because if we're Christians, we have the Holy Spirit within us, and that demon cannot enter into our spirits. There's no way. Now, we have a lot of demon oppression in our world today. Satan uses his angels, which are demons, and he works in the lives of people to frustrate them, maybe to cause anger or sickness or pain. But there are ways in which he oppresses us today. And when Jesus walked on the earth, demon possession was considered among the greatest of miracles to overcome because it was the ultimate battle of good against evil. And it was considered to be a hopeless situation. But I like what Charles Allen said. He said, when you say the situation is hopeless, you're basically slamming the door in God's face. And we've got some people in our church that over the past couple of years have overcome physical issues that if you looked at them from a worldly perspective, we would have said, like, there's no hope here. But God wasn't going to allow that door to slam in His face. And He worked. And we've seen some amazing healings take place. Prayer is a powerful thing. So there's an important application for us today. And that concerns spiritual warfare. In Ephesians 6, verse 12, Paul wrote, We are not fighting against humans. We are fighting against forces and authorities and against rulers of darkness and powers in the spiritual world. And that's who our fight is against. It's not against the people that we can see. It's against those hidden powers, those spiritual powers that would want to take us captive. Philip Yancey, I've read his book for years, didn't realize the wild hairdo that the guy had, but he pointed this out. He said that faith may produce miracles, but miracles do not necessarily produce faith. And that's so true, because Jesus performed many miracles, but people didn't believe. They didn't have faith as a result of that. Jesus never met a disease he couldn't cure, or a birth defect he couldn't take care of. But he did meet some skeptics that he could not convince people that would not believe in him, would not accept him as the Lord and Savior of their lives. And as a result of that, his strongest words of grace and repentance were just turned away. And those people walked away unforgiven. Today, you may face demonic pressures. It might be a family member who dabbles with the occult. 
It might be an addiction that you're struggling with and it just constantly seems to haunt you over and over again. Just remember that the scriptures say, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And we've got this power that enables us to deal with anything that we face. It's greater than anything in this world. Satan and anyone that would follow him. Then Jesus calmly handled the popularity. In verse 42. The next morning Jesus went out to a place where he could be alone. And the crowds came looking for him. And when they found him, they tried to stop him from leaving. And later on, Luke actually tells us that Jesus went to a solitary place so that he could pray. He was always doing this. Whether it was when he was in Nazareth, in his hometown, facing opposition, they wanted to kill him. Or whether it was here in Capernaum, where he's kind of at the height of his popularity. Or maybe when he was out there looking for followers to come after him. It didn't matter when it was. He still took time for prayer, for some time to connect with God, his Father. And we might think, okay, that he is Jesus and he's God. Like why does he need these times of solitude, these times of prayer? But he is God anyway. But he still needed to connect with God. He still needed that time. He needed to spend time in prayer and silence. So popularity didn't uh, change him at all. Like people wanted him to stay there. We want you to teach to us all day long. But he went off and humbly prayed to God his Father. Solitude and prayer are foreign concepts today. Like we just don't have time for it, do we? Like it's a frantic pace. We've got appointments. We've got meetings that we have to go to. We're distracted. We're rushed. We're preoccupied. And it, what happens is we then settle for a faith that isn't one that God would want us to have. Years ago, in frontier days, if somebody missed a stagecoach, they just waited two days until the next coach came along. But today, if we enter into one of those revolving doors and we miss the section that we wanted to get into, we get upset because that has slowed us down just a few seconds, but it's still so much. Mike Rowe was the senior pastor at Southland Christian Church in Lexington, Kentucky. And I actually met him back in 2004 at the North American Christian Convention. I actually sat with him at a meal, and he was the main speaker that day. It was very impressive. I you know you're not that impressed. But anyway, he told a story about playing in their softball league. And he said he looked around at everybody on the team, and they all had pagers. This was back in the late 1990s. Everybody had a pager attached to his ball uniform. So he said, I went out to my car, and I got my garage door opener, and I snapped that on so I fit in with everybody else. So we rush, we're panicked, we have this hurried life that we live. So here's a pop quiz for you to determine whether you are too much in a rush or not. And I don't want you to answer it last. <coughs> the first one is, have you ever eaten a meal while driving in the car? Not as a passenger, but driving yourself. Have you ever changed clothes while driving in the car? And how many of you women have put on makeup while driving in the car? 
How many of you have hung up on someone while they're still saying goodbye to you, but you're in a rush to move on to something else or another conversation? Or have you ever cut through a gas station by trying to avoid a, an intersection? Have you ever parked in a fire lane or a handicapped parking spot? And when you see a yellow light, are you most likely to accelerate? Is that the first decision that you make? And then how many of you have ever thought during the message, like, how much longer does he want And if you happen to have three children, how many of you have ever wondered if this were their three names? Come on, hurry, get going. Like, we are in such a rush today. So how did you do on that little quiz? But we need to do a lot of work in order to get that solitude part right. And the truth is, no matter how much we complain about it, we're drawn to hurry. It, it makes us feel important. It, it's almost like it gets the adrenaline flowing. It's a bit of a rush or a high to be going from one thing to the next. And part of the problem is that we're in a culture that's consumed with being on the go. There's no time for visiting, no time for solitude, no time for prayer. Henry Nouwen, in his book, The Way of the Heart, speaks about solitude. And he says that solitude is the place where ministry and spirituality embrace each other. It becomes a spiritual property with which we can compete in the market of spiritual goods. We can also think of solitude as a station where we can recharge our batteries or as the corner in a boxing room. Basically, we think of solitude as a place where we gather new strength to continue the ongoing competition in life. The goal of our life is not people, it's God. And only with Him shall we find the rest we seek. Now I'm a people person, I love being with people. But now it tells us, and God's Word tells us, that there's something more important with people, and that is time alone with God. And when we do that, we recharge our batteries, we re-energize, and then we can go out and be involved with people and make some amazing differences in their lives. And there's a great danger for us in this. And the danger isn't that we're going to renounce our faith. The danger is that we'll get so distracted and rushed and preoccupied that we'll settle for a mediocre version of our faith. That we won't live our faith as fully as God intended. We'll just skim the surface of the Christian life rather than actually living it. To Jesus is much more concerned with what's going on on the inside than he is with the speed with which we are moving on the outside. And John Knox was a powerful preacher and a man of God and a man of prayer. And years ago, he was called before Mary, Queen of Scots. And she had a reputation for having a murderous temper. And someone warned Knox to be very careful when visiting her. Be cautious, the guy said. And this was Knox's response. He said, why should I fear ten minutes with the Queen when I have spent one hour with my King? And that's so true. But he spent an hour on his knees praying to God before going in to visit his Queen. He had no fear whatsoever because he been close to his God. Solitude and prayer allow us the opportunity to spiritually recharge our batteries so that we can be ready to face whatever comes our way that day. And Jesus hadn't just talked with God, He'd been with God over and over again. He chose 
private prayer over public music. And there's a lesson in that for all of us that are involved in leadership positions. And then we note that he clearly understood his ministry. Verse 43. But Jesus said, People in other towns must hear the good news about God's kingdom. That's why I was sent. So he kept on preaching in the Jewish meeting places in Judea. He's basically saying here, that's why I'm here. That's why God sent me. It was to let people know about the good news. And we as a church, we as individuals, must clearly understand what our mission is. Because if God was to ask you, but what are you on this earth for? I would hope your answer is to bring you glory, God. It's to worship you. It's to let other people know about you. It's to serve you in ministry. Peter Drucker, in his book, The Effective Executive, tells managers to ask those beneath them, what is your unique contribution to this organization? And if God was to ask us, then what we have to offer to Him, I would hope it's love, that it's service, that it's sacrifice, that it's our talents and our time. God wants us to make a unique contribution. He wants us to spread that good news. Jesus looked for the opportunities to do it, and he wants us to look for those opportunities as well. Then we move into chapter 5, verse 1. Jesus was standing on the shore of Lake Gennesaret, teaching the people as they crowded around him to hear God's message. Near the shore, he saw two boats left there by some fishermen who had gone to wash their nets. Jesus got into the boat that belonged to Simon and asked him to row out a little way from the shore. Then Jesus sat down in the boat to teach the crowd. And Jesus it was always on the lookout for ways in which he could more effectively speak to the people. And he sees this setting. It's a lake with hills on either side. And he knows that that is a natural amphitheater. He knows it for one reason, that he actually helped to create it in the first place. So he sees this as a terrific opportunity to be able to speak to more and more people, to let them hear his teaching. And then the last credential we see in this passage is that Jesus totally transformed the unlikely. And he gives one more miracle here. This is the clincher. This is the one that basically pushed them over the hump. And for you younger people, that goes back to the old days when you tried to jumpstart your vehicle. It was a standard. And you had to keep pushing until you got over that last little hill. And then you could coast downhill and pop the clutch. You still don't know what I'm talking about. And start the vehicle. So this miracle was the one that basically pushed people over the top of that hill. Convinced them who he was. So in verses 4 to 10, when Jesus had finished speaking, he told Peter, Roll the boat out into the deep water and let your nets down to catch some fish. Master, Simon answered, we have worked hard all night long and have not caught a thing, but if you tell me to, I will let the nets down. They did it and caught so many fish that their nets began ripping apart. Then they signaled for their partners in the other boat to come and help them. The men came, and together they filled the two boats so full that they both began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this happen, he knelt down in front of Jesus and said, 
Lord, don't come near me. I am a sinner. Peter and everyone with him were completely surprised at all the fish they had caught. His partners, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, were surprised too. And Jesus told Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on, you will bring in people instead of fish. So Jesus said to Simon Peter, Peter, let's go fishing. And Peter goes, Oh no, Like we just did that all night long and we never caught a thing. But if you say so, we'll go out there and we'll drop those nets down into the water again. Like we'll give it a try. We'll give it a shot. See, that is obedience in action. That's what faith is. Jesus knew the possibilities. He knew the future. He saw this group of men. And He knew what they would be able to accomplish. And He talked them into going fishing. They caught this amazing amount of fish. And if they hadn't obeyed Him, they would have missed out on witnessing one of the greatest miracles of their lives. And then Jesus does something surprising. He looks at this motley crew of fishermen and he could see the possibilities and he said to them, let's go fishing. But this time he said, we're going to catch men instead of fish. So a greater miracle than the catch of that extreme number of fish was going to be believing that these men would actually change the world. The biggest miracle was going to be changing them so that they could go out and change others. God has a way of seeing the potential in people. He saw the possibilities and the potential in this ordinary group of fishermen. And back in the Old Testament, He did this over and over again. One example was with Gideon. The Israelites had fallen far away from God, and as a result of that, the Midianites had come in and were torturing them. And God called Gideon to be the leader, to take them out of all of that. But Gideon is threshing wheat, which you normally do up on top of a hill, so that all the chaff will blow away. But instead, he's down in a wine press. He's underground. And he's actually even crouched down below ground level so that the Midianites don't see him and come along and steal his wheat. And then God sends this angel to Gideon. And the angel says, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. But if anybody else was around, they would have laughed. Mighty warrior. The guy's hiding in a wine press, trying to thresh his wheat. But maybe the angel was trying to pump him up and get him ready for that task. But it's hard for us to then read the next verse in Luke 5 and really convey all that it means. The men pulled their boats up on the shore. They left everything and went with Jesus. Luke says they left everything. Like That would be an amazing scene for someone to actually reenact. This ragtag group of men following Jesus, leaving their boats and everything else behind. Like it would be like those annoying axe commercials that you see on TV. The guy slaps on some axe and then he starts walking through town. Sometimes it's down a mountainside and the beautiful women just flock to him and follow him. So here's Jesus. Like he just makes the call to these men. Come follow me. Come and catch men instead of fish. And they followed him. 
and they had this huge pile of fish here. It must have meant a ton of money. It was the catch of a lifetime. But they just walked away and left that all there. And why did they do it? It's because they now had the opportunity to quit changing hooks for going out and actually catching people. They had the opportunity to turn their lives around completely, to start changing other people's lives. Like there's no comparison. Like I grew up on a farm and there was a temptation to stay on the farm and to grow crops and to try and influence the world in that way. But such a greater opportunity to be involved in ministry and to change lives in that way. You remember that Jesus can transform the most unlikely. If Sidney Crosby was to come up to me and say, Greg, you know, I'd like to give you a few tips on your wrist shot. Well, I might think, okay, it's a little late to really use a wrist shot, but this is Sidney Crosby. I'd like to spend some time with him. Or if someone like Bubba Watson came up to me, and Bubba Watson is a professional golfer, and he said, Greg, like, I can give you some tips so that you will hit a longer shot. Like, I'd listen to the man. Like, this could be good. And, and then if someone like Bill Gates said, you know what, Greg, your associate pastors aren't really helping you that much with your computer. You're not really getting what you could out of it. I could just spend a little bit of time with you, and you could become that much more effective. And I'd be right there. I'd say, come on in, Bill. And then maybe Lee Iacocca would say to me, look, Greg, I'd love to share some ideas with you about administration. And I'd be all for it. I'd listen. And you know why? Because these people have credibility. If a man speaks with humility, and yet at the same time speaks with authority, if he can conquer demons, if he can handle the popularity, if he can live a life of purpose, and if he can transform lives, then I'm amazed by that. But then if that very same man was able to walk out of his own grave and say, let me share with you the good news of eternal life. And we'd be wise to listen to and obey and follow that leader. And notice that the five credentials that we looked at here this morning are merely from one day in the life of Jesus. And John, at the end of his gospel, writes these words, John 21, 25. Jesus did many other things. If they were all written in books, I don't suppose there would be room enough in the whole world for all the books. Like one translation of that verse says, like all the libraries in the world wouldn't have enough space for those books. And that's how many things he said. He may have some impressive credentials, but compared to what Christ has accomplished and who he is, you know, we're like filthy rags in comparison to his holiness. But he's the one, Jesus is the one that said, I am the way and the truth and the life. But no one comes to the Father except through me. But maybe you've never responded to the impressive credentials of Jesus Christ. Maybe you've never accepted him as the Lord of your life and said, you know, I want you to be master. And I want to follow you. I want to surrender my life to you and be baptized in you. If you've never made that we invite you to do that this morning as we stand together to sing our commitment song. You can come to the front and make that decision. You can speak to me afterwards or to any other members of our leadership. Let's stand together.